Failure is the condiment that gives success its flavor. Truman Capote Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Emetophobia Help. I'm Anna Christie from Vancouver, Canada, and I'm a recovered emetophobic licensed psychotherapist specializing in emetophobia and your host for this podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have as my guests the authors of a new book called Gag Reflections, Conquering a Fear of Vomit Through Exposure Therapy. And uh, the authors are Dr. David Yusko and his former client, Dara Lovitz, from Pennsylvania in the United States. Hello, David and Dara. Hi, Hi. Anna. (laughs) Nice to see you and meet you after having read your book. Um, I was so excited to see your book, actually, because at the time it was the only one published, uh, you know, by a, a proper publisher um, about emetophobia. So that that was really exciting. Um, Dara, I wonder if we could start our story with you for the sake of our listeners who aren't familiar with the book yet. Can you just tell us a bit about your emetophobia up to the point where you started working with David? Sure. Um, as a kid, I was I was pretty anxious about almost everything. I mean, I was anxious about heights and big crowds, um, but my anxiety about vomit was um, premier and it sort of took over my mind. I was always scared that someone was going to throw up or that I was going to throw up. I avoided amusement parks and I tried to avoid sleepovers and I didn't like going to um, parades that my parents would want to take me to any place where there's a likelihood that somebody would be sick. Um, and then growing up as a teenager, I avoided alcohol and drugs and didn't go to the parties where such things were consumed. Um, same with college, just trying to avoid bars and restaurants where there would be drinking or late night events where there'd be drinking and people getting sick. Um, even to the point where I didn't like being on the streets of Philadelphia after maybe 10 p.m. because I was certain I would run into somebody who was staggering and drunk and maybe throwing up in a trash can or something. Right. Yeah. Would you say that you were more afraid of yourself vomiting or seeing other people? Um, I, I'm not really a puker. Um, so I didn't have a lot of instances of throwing up in my life. So I kind of, it, it wasn't so much that it was more being around other people who are sick that really disturbed me. Right. Yes. Um, I can relate to that because I was the same way for most of my adult life, much more afraid of seeing or hearing someone else. Did you find that the sound bothered you as well? Yes. Um, Yes. And I don't know which bothered me more, although maybe when I was doing my exposure therapy, I did have more of a reaction to the I'm trying to think maybe was it to the sound, David? Because I know once sometimes there was a time at which during the exposure therapies, I was watching videos of people vomiting and it was too difficult for me. And David suggested I turn the volume down and just mm-hmm. watch it. And then, you know, so we were titrating the exposure um, and that made it more, uh, I guess, less awful. I wanted to say more palatable, but it was really it made it less awful. <laughs> right. A little less awful. Yeah. I think most people 
are like that. Um, when I set up my website with all the resources and the exposure, I kind of had to put them in an order, which is like a hierarchy. And for me, looking at it was worse. And that was the original way that I set up the, but then client after client, you know, w found it worse to hear it. Um, and I, it seemed like that was more common. So I did switch everything and was um, started to be careful about what, what videos, what they sounded like and put the more difficult ones at the end. But it, it's true that everybody's oh, different. Yeah, very, mm -hmm. very different. Um, so David, you um, tell us a bit about your practice and what kinds of people you treat. Um, so uh, our practice is really specialized on folks who are anxious. And um, we're, we're, our, our name is the Center for Anxiety and Behavior Therapy. And I think the name really does kind of capture what it is that we do. Our main specialty area is um, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, my co-founder, Steve Sow, and myself um, worked together at the University of Pennsylvania under the mentorship of um, Edna Foa who is one of the psychologists who have really developed some of the most effective um, behavioral exposure-based interventions um, for disorders like OCD. Um, I think another area that I work in, which is slightly different, is uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, used to be an anxiety disorder, but is now um, housed under uh, trauma disorders. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, our practice is really focused on anxious folks, um, and uh, the specialties of phobias and panic disorder and generalized anxiety disorder have come with a focus on OCD and PTSD, um, mm -hmm. but really working a lot with um, exposure therapy for anxious people. That's yeah. what we do. And even OCD is um, in a different um, uh, section of the DSM-5 now, as it's sort of, I think it's on its own, isn't it? Um, it is, you're correct. OCD and related disorders. Um, have, and so, um, Dara came to see you, had you treated emetophobia before you met Dara? Yep, it was, you know, um, a fraction, right? Like, I don't... Um, had not gotten nearly as many referrals for that particular problem um, as with um, OCD. And what, to my initial surprise, like I thought this would be more like a phobic disorder, like a height phobia or an animal-based mm -hmm. phobia. Um, and as I've spent more time with emetophobics, it's actually very, very similar to an obsessive compulsive disorder presentation. Yes. And so my background in OCD, I thought really prepared me very well early on for working with emetophobics because mm -hmm. the essential nature of the presenting problem almost look identical. And I think actually a lot of emetophobic people can be miscategorized or mislabeled as obsessive compulsive uh, mm -hmm. because their behaviors can look ritualistic. Um, yes. And if you don't really get at what the core fear is, I think you can kind of misdiagnose. Uh, but all of that to say, 
the background in OCD, I thought, really prepared me very well for uh, my initial emetophobic clients. And Dara really was an early person in my in my career. Um, so one of my first emetophobic clients. Yeah. Um, I interviewed Alexandra Keys and David Veal. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Um, I know David Veal because he's an OCD person in the UK. Yes. Um, mainly he researches um, uh, emetophobia and body dysmorphic disorder. Uh, but yes, gotcha. uh, he, he definitely is an OCD expert. And Alexandra Keyes is, has begun working with him and doing research, um, which is which is great. I joked on that podcast that, you know, she's really young and he's old. And so that's... <laughs> That's a good thing to have someone else. Uh, he's done a huge um, body of research, but he he was talking about thinking of OCD and emetophobia as kind of running along a continuum almost from like pure emetophobia, pure OCD. But most people, I, I have yet to have um, an emetophobic client that did not also have OCD, it's, you know, apart from their... Um, emetophobia symptoms. They also had OCD symptoms of of rituals or checking or um, contamination and you know things like that. So um, it, they're they're related, yes. But you're right about um, actually emetophobia is misdiagnosed as a whole bunch of things. Um, colleague and I are writing a book for therapists, and we have a whole chapter on misdiagnosis of emetophobia. But I bet. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so that's great. You um, kind of met each other, and uh, why don't you kind of go from there, Dara, and tell uh, our listeners about your journey of recovery with um, David? Uh, well, in our first sessions, we went through. Well, he introduced me to the idea of exposure therapy and how the hierarchy would work, um, how to track my subjective units of distress. Um, you call them SUDS levels. I don't know if um, I need to go into that, but basically your levels of distress on a chart from, in my case, one to 10, um, so that he could understand where my phobia was, um, similar to the question you asked. Is it about you vomiting? Is it about other people vomiting? Is it the sound? Is it the visual? Um, are you scared of getting sick yourself? And so he had me go through, I had to do some homework um, about tracking certain instances in my life when I was super upset about vomit um, and sort of rate them. And so that helped him create, well, with me, create this hierarchy of exposure. Um, so we did it together and that made it more comfortable. Um, and then we went through, I started to have this homework where every day for 20 minutes I would watch videos and they were, um, so we were stepping from easy to harder and mm -hmm. uh, started with videos of, um, like um, animated cartoons of animated mm -hmm. characters vomiting. So that seems really low level to a lot of people. But even some of those videos <laughs> were upsetting to me and disturbing to me. Um, there are some, some producers or directors who like to put realistic sounds of vomit. So it's not cutesy yep. and it's <laughs> real. It sounds like a real person vomiting, even though it's an animated character. Um, right. And I'm pretty sure it was one of those videos. It was a Family Guy episode that uh, there was a vomit scene that was so realistic. There was 
the sound of the gagging, the splashes, the vomit hit the floor, mm-hmm. and it was very excessive. And and it got my suds level up to a very high level of distress. And that's when I think David said you should titrate. And if it's really too difficult, watch it without volume first until it causes little to no distress. And then watch the video with the volume. And then again, keep watching those videos until the distress level goes down. And so I did that and week by week kept building on it. So first it was animated cartoon type videos. And then it was real life people, but in comedy scenarios. So it's funny. Um, and so that was a little bit easier to watch than the next level, which was dramatic movies or dramatic TV shows where someone vomits. And now it's not funny. It's not supposed to be funny. And it's more realistic. Mm-hmm. A lot of times in comedies and comedy movies, the vomit is very fake looking, you know, so mm-hmm. there's a little bit of suspension of disbelief. And But then mm-hmm. in dramatic movies, they want it to look real. Um, so that's harder to watch. And my last <laughs> level of video watching was real life people vomiting. Um, so no actors, no makeup, and um, yeah. good old YouTube, yeah. everything. <laughs> There's no shortage of real people vomiting on YouTube. I know, yeah. Um, I remember being struck when I when I was reading um, your book about how courageous you were and are. Obviously, um, it uh, and I find that metaphobics that I work with, for the most part are very courageous. I mean, you have to be courageous to even contact one of us and want to start this kind of work. Um, But not everyone could begin with videos of any kind. Uh, It seems like a lot of my clients are terrified of the idea of watching a video. So I do have nine levels of words and drawings and pictures before videos on, on my, um, on my resource page. And so, you know, and then I tell people though, that when they start watching the videos that I have listed on my page, that they begin again, very, very easy, because I know a lot of there, I've got about 8,000 to 10,000 backlinks onto that resource page. So a lot of therapists want to begin with videos. So I start them off quite easy. And like the first one is a Pennzoil commercial where a car doesn't like the oil that's put into it and it vomits the oil and then little babies spitting up and it kind of goes from there because I I know that a lot of people like and the cartoon characters. um, Yeah, South Park and um, Family Guy. Yeah, uh, those are a little easier. I think I have a little odd bods kids cartoon or something like that but but you started with not really knowing you know what was going you were going to be looking at um and what it was going to sound like so how high would your sud level uh and again that's for our listeners subjective units of distress and it is a subjective number so somebody's seven is not someone else's seven but for you how high did it go dara when you've watched the video that you said it was too high. Yeah, there for that one cartoon, I think it got up to maybe an eight, what I would call an eight. Um, and it was upsetting enough for me that I that I basically quit that day and I didn't continue watching because I'm a very um I'm a very black and white thinker. So if I'm not succeeding, I'm failing and this isn't working, oh. so I'm done. So I had a terrible attitude. I had a terrible, terrible attitude. And that's why it was important that I was seeing a therapist who could, as David did, encourage me and say, it's okay, we can work with this and you can titrate. 
And I remember later on, there was a movie, um, a movie scene, a movie called Carnage with Kate Winslet, and she vomits and it's very realistic. And I, um, I had trouble with that too. And I kind of had to turn off the, the laptop and I was very discouraged. And then David reminded me to look, look back on all the videos I was able to achieve, like look back, mm-hmm. I've stepped up on this hierarchy. And he also told me something extremely important, which counters my black and white thinking, which is during your, um, during your recovery, there are going to be, there are going to be dips and there are going to be setbacks. And that doesn't mean you failed and it doesn't mean you should quit. It means that day wasn't your day and that you should keep going. So instead of a, you know, a straight up, I'm using my hands in a podcast, which isn't helpful. But I know I do it all the upwards. time. Yeah. <laughs> instead of a, you know, a straight up line, it's more, mm-hmm. um, there are more peaks and valleys in your progress. Yes. And so, and I think that's important for, um, for other emetophobes like me who are very black and white and literal and just want an easy solution or the, you know, any kind of setback is not necessarily failure. And that's an important message I needed to hear. Right. Yeah. And um, uh, what did I just see a quotation that I wanted to use that on, on one of my podcasts, failure is the condiment that gives success. It's, I don't know. I don't know the last word. I'm doing this with my hands now. Yeah. So all of you, it's flavor or it's, you know, um, yeah. And so um, that, but that thinking is certainly not unique to you. Um, and uh, metaphobes, I find for the most part, and I'll include myself here, we are used to beating ourselves up from a young age because other people have beaten us up. Until you know, um, invalidated the phobia because it does sound silly to somebody that's not emetophobic, you know. Um, and and it sounds like something you could just stop doing, stop being afraid of, or just go throw up and then you'll be fine, which isn't true either. Um, you won't be fine, <laughs> you know, depending where you are in your recovery, you may be worse. So, yeah. Um, um, David, one of the things that I I loved about the book is that first of all, um, you know, Dara, your writing is is just great, and and the story is very, uh, yeah, I don't know, it just it's a, like a page turning kind of story. And then David, you inserted every once in a while into her story some of the theory. Um, it's about, do you want, could you talk for a moment about that decision and, um, and how you both work together on that? Yeah, that I, I really appreciate that you kind of picked that up because we, um, we, Dara and I really talked about this idea of kind of like taking, and I just want to also agree, Dara, I thought really brought her story and tells it in a very approachable way. Her sense of humor, I think, is fantastic. Right. Um, yes, I, like I think her humor is one of the things that also kind of saves her and brings her through, you know, really difficult exposures. Is that she can she can laugh and she can bring, um, you know, some humor to uh, to the to this process, uh, and she can laugh at herself and you know things like this, which I think really do come out in the book. She's very smart. She's witty. All of that stuff really comes alive in the book and has been um, really helpful to her therapy and her maintenance of, of, of what she's done since then. Um, 
And I, as, as we were writing the book and, you know, she had her chapters and I had my chapters and we would mm-hmm. kind of talk them over and we would read each other's chapters. And I could just see in her chapters that there were times when I wanted to like highlight that what she was saying in her part was also referencing something that I was talking about mm-hmm. in another part. And I was, I was looking for a way or we or we were looking for a way that we could maybe bridge um, those topics. And it just felt like, like putting in these little therapist notes, um, in her chapters kind of did, instead of having them be separate, isolated chapters, it did kind of help combine them and bring the stories together a little bit more. Um, and then there was like a publishing question of like, how do you do that? Like where in the book does it go? And is it on the bottom? Is it a footnote? Is it a little bubble blurb that comes up? Uh, which ultimately did get figured out. But I was mm-hmm. glad that we persisted on it because we doubted whether to do it or not. Um, yeah. And we oh, ultimately great. pushed for it. Mm-hmm. It made it more like a conversation almost that somebody was telling a story and then a therapist was kind of reflecting. Um, what's the word I want? Not, not academically, because that sounds like the book's not very accessible, which it is. Uh, it's very easy to read uh, in, uh, in both of your parts of it are, but um, yeah, the reflection is, um, it, it's really cool. Um, one of the things that you said uh, a moment ago, Dara, that I also really liked um, in your story, both of your stories is that David had you at the beginning kind of walking through your life on a given week. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I have to, you know, it's about three or four books ago that I read your books. So. Um, but had you tracking um, what what exactly is triggers you at any given moment. Do, can you talk about that a, a little bit, Dara, and what, that what exactly you were doing there? Yeah, I think, like I said, I think he was trying to understand um, what my emetophobia looked like as compared to anyone else's. We all, you know, when you speak to so many emetophobes, you see that we all have different things that trigger us. And um, mm-hmm. we're all similar in that vomit is the, the trigger, but the way it manifests mm-hmm. is different for everybody. So I think he was trying to understand that. So he told me to give examples of when I was in a lot of distress surrounding a vomit event. Um, so describe the event, what happened, when did you start to feel this way? How high on the anxiety level were you? And so I gave different examples throughout um, throughout my childhood. And like mm-hmm. most emetophobes, I remember in great detail the moments that were, um, I would say traumatic. You know, they felt traumatic to me and they stuck in my brain decades later. Um, and mm-hmm. I still remember them, um, but now I don't look at them with a feeling of trauma anymore. Um, but they, but so I would explain certain events like, a, you know, being near someone who vomited, walking down the street and there was a man vomiting in the alley and different stories from my, um, my upbringing where somebody did vomit and my reaction to it was a panic attack or um, sometimes I've passed out or lost consciousness. Yes. Well, wow. I didn't remember that. You actually passed out. Maybe I didn't Yeah, well, yeah. right. There was one, I mean, one episode where I was on a subway with someone who said he thought he was going to throw up and it was a crowded subway. And so I um, 
you know, I started to see darkness and I sort of crouched on the ground and proceeded, you know, I, I didn't want to hit the ground or fall on somebody, but I know the feeling of, of that, you know, the dizziness. Um, but, but more importantly is when I was, um, when I had two baby, I had twins and one of my twins, um, when she was a baby, she threw up on me and I had to hand her to my husband. And then I, I just went straight to the ground. I, you know, I lost consciousness and that was, one of those moments where I said I need help because now I'm a mom and this isn't just me being annoying to my family members. This is me not being able to mother my child. And that really did, um, you know, it was the driving force behind me eventually seeking uh, David's help. Yeah. Um, That was a, that, that was a really good um, uh, um, kind of technique, I think uh, to, to be, tracking or should be recording i think what, what yeah, are these? it's, it's a, I call it a self-monitoring exercise okay yes yeah and um and that what you had said earlier is really important which is like i have a we have a strategy um but the question is how do you apply the strategy to any given individual and having them pay attention to when this problem comes up Mm-hmm. Um, in the course of a week is incredibly informative. Um, mm. It's And I can't follow you around and track it, right? Like you wouldn't want me to do that. So this is like the next best thing is I give mm-hmm. you a form and the form is monitoring what triggers you, what activates you. This is one of the, one of the things I'm, uh, I'm trying to figure out is what mm-hmm. does cause the fear to come online? Where, how do you, when you, get activated or you start vibrating inside why mm. what stirs it and to mm-hmm. what degree that's the level of sense yes and then the last component of this is when you do get activated what do you do what's your behavioral response to the presence of that trigger so what this allows me to see is this tells me here are all the things that activate you to mm-hmm. this degree and how you respond Um, so now I know at least now, okay, we're building your hierarchy because I now know what are the things that activate you and to what level. And I also know from a safety behaviors, this is what you've been using to cope. So now I'm going to ask you to start stopping those behaviors and we're going to lean in to the triggers. So the, the, the self-monitoring gives you all the information you need for that individual to apply this therapy to. Um, right. It's really important that it's individualized. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I like what you uh, just said. I can really resonate with what you said about safety behaviors. Um, people who fear themselves vomiting more than seeing someone else, um, a, a lot of the triggers are internal body there, I'm pointing to myself now on a podcast. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there maybe there's a little pain over here. A lot of it is described as nausea, which I kind of figured out over the years may or may not actually be nausea, but just different digestive kind of feelings that people have. And then what do they do? Yes. Like, what do they do? They often take 
peppermints or ginger or over the counter, you know, Pepto Bismol. And it kind of, it kind of escalates from there. Uh, and, and with other things on the outside world, they may run away or, you know, as you, as you did, Dara, just faint, you know, to kind of get out of the situation, uh, hand the baby and off you're, are in another world. Um, it's a unique form of avoidance, but not a hundred percent unique to you. Um, yeah. Um, David, I wanted to ask you, uh, to talk for a little bit about, uh, because I'm interviewing a lot of therapists who are treating emetophobia this season on this podcast. And I'd like to hear kind of your theory of, um, or, and, or your, um, yeah, your theory of, you know, what it is that you need to do with people. Do they, with exposure, for example, do they need to um, look at something, if it's a virtual, like a video, until the anxiety is gone? Um, is there a level where they should learn to tolerate it? Because that's kind of the latest thing with, um, you know, ACT. And, and some, some other, um, theories like that of, of simply allowing the anxiety to be there or are you looking to diminish it? So if you could talk a bit about that, it'd be great. Oh, it's a great question, Anna. Thank you. And I, I, we, Dara really, um, pushed me to write this chapter in the book, which was, <laughs> um, like a history behind behavior therapy yes. and exposure therapy, right. yes, which uh, might be boring to some folks, but this is your mm -hmm. question really is like, how do you, how do I conceptualize or how could one, you know, yes. kind of conceptualize the, 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 the development and the maintenance of emetophobia and the treatment for it? And the, so a, a theory should be able to describe those three elements. And so my my background is was with Edna Foa and her um, theory, along with a man named Michael Kozak, was called emotional processing theory. Um, and it's a learning theory is what this is ultimately about is how does one learn and how can one relearn or, or learn something new? Um, I think what I've added to emotional processing theory over time, and you highlight the component of, of emotional tolerance, um, Michelle Krask is a therapist, out, yes. a psychologist out in UCLA and has really, um, um, developed um, inhibitory learning theory. And right. so for me, the combination of emotional processing theory and inhibitory learning theory are the guides um, for how to approach an exposure-based treatment. And so you are correct in that I am going to try for probably one of two or three avenues. Um, so the emotional processing theory idea does rely on a topic called habituation. And mm -hmm. what habituation suggests is if you spend time, meaning enough time and enough repetitions of time. So if I watch a video once for five minutes, you may not have enough duration or repetition for that video to change how you feel when you watch it. Mm -hmm. So Dara said, she was asked to watch videos for 20 minutes. So mm -hmm. that was purposeful. We want enough time to go by and to do it, she said, every day. 
So it's duration and repetition. And when you watch the same thing over mm-hmm. and over and over and over and over again, it does start to get boring. And yeah. so that's habituation, right? You know, the first time yes. you watch it, it's not very fun. But mm-hmm. by the 20th time you've watched it, you're like, this is pretty boring. So that's the right. habituation model. And that works yeah. for a lot of people, but not for everyone. And so the other side of what you're talking about is the tolerance model. And so that's also practicing learning that I can tolerate the way that I feel and that just because I feel a certain way doesn't mean X, Y, or Z is going to happen. In this instance, I'm going to throw up or someone around me is going to throw up. Right. Yeah. And so I learned to tolerate those feelings and not act on them in a way that doesn't isn't warranted in the environment that I'm in. So I'm really working from either an habituation and or a tolerance-based model mm-hmm. in order to try to learn what it is that matters and what doesn't matter. That's um that's such a great answer. Um David Russ, uh who's the child psychologist that I am writing the book with um, for therapists. And we have spent more time talking about this probably than anything else. And um, it because I was treated originally in the 80s, there was only the habituation model. And I think that if I had been told, uh, because some, some therapists are purists, you know, like, you know, Michelle Krask or, or, you know, whoever it is, they're, they're like, no, that, you know, you, um, you tolerate the, and I, I think I would have been, if I'd been told that I would have been, but they're not tolerable. Like the, I get them instantly, you know, like instantly I go from zero to 60 and I can't tolerate it. If I could, I wouldn't add, you know, um, so, but I do find with my clients that there is an awful lot that they can tolerate and I can as well, um, without, and the main point is, I think, without doing anything, without, without any kind of safety behavior, including what you're thinking in your own head. Like, you know, you might be thinking, oh, I did, you know, I felt like this last Thursday and that's when I had, you know, sprouts for lunch and I had them today. And like, that's a safety behavior in and of itself. And it's only a thought, you know? So if you can, if you can tolerate and just let the anxiety be there. Um, I, I say to people, it tends to stop showing up after a while because it can't be bothered. It's not, you know, getting, it's, it's not getting to you anymore. Um, and the, I know when I first read, um, Michelle Kraske, I was kind of, um, I was in a way mildly insulted, mildly insulted about this learning. Uh, I'm like, what do I have? Not I, because I was better by the time I read her, but what is it we have to learn? Um, you know, uh, and I think really it applies more to OCD than it does to this specific phobia in that there is, and you can, you can definitely correct me if I'm wrong or argue with me, but it's, it's like in OCD, you know, if I don't flip the light switch 20 times, I can learn that nothing happens if that makes sense. I kind of like, okay, that's, and similarly, if I don't take ginger every time I feel nauseous, 
my brain will learn that I'm actually okay. And the ginger wasn't doing anything anyway. Does that make sense? That's accurate. I, okay. I agree with that. And like, you know, so like a metaphobics, they'll, they'll like, um, they'll wash things and yep. they'll clean them and they'll check expiration dates and they'll smell yeah. stuff and, you know, mm-hmm. and they'll tell themselves reassurance based things. Like all of that's designed to protect them and keep them safe. And I guess what I would, I would, I would talk about is the whether we're learning whether or not those behaviors are necessary. That's what Correct. we're learning. Yes, uh, right. that's what I would argue. Right? Yeah. That's, and that's I think when when um, people are have the kind of a metaphobia that I had that was at its worst, and maybe even Dara, there's less to learn really because it's not about safety behaviors at, at all. It's it's about well, I guess it, it can be said that if you stay in the situation when someone's throwing up on the subway instead of leaving, you know, then you learn that you really are okay. You know, you're all right. Um, and and so in that sense, um, then I could reread it. You know, and, uh, and, and the same with some of the act, um, which is um, acceptance and commitment theory for listeners who are not familiar with ACT, uh, and it draws on many of these principles. Okay, um, Dara, tell us a bit about after the videos, um, what was the next part of your journey with your exposure? And you got to tell the story of this friend who can just drink the little, I love that story. I can just drink a little bottle of whiskey, like a little airplane bottle of whiskey. Um, yeah. Let us know what, what happened there or what, where you went from there. Sure. And I'll, I'll back up in time um, chronologically a little and to the extent okay. you want to cut any of this out, just cut it out and I'll try not to have you fall asleep on me. But no, no. Um, I do want to get to the point. So I had watched, um, I graduated to the level of watching real life people vomit on YouTube. And mm-hmm. what I knew looking back is that I can now tolerate watching people vomit on the screen, which is something I couldn't tolerate before. So I, that was great. But what about in real life? Like, how is this going to help me in real life? And the universe heard me ask that question. And um, my daughter, who maybe was three or four at the time, she threw up. I was alone in the house with her and my other daughter, and I was motherly. I did not pass out. I cleaned her up. I was sympathetic to her. I was like, I dare I say it, I was a maternal person in that moment, um, which was new for me because, again, I'm the person that passed out when, when my daughter was a baby and threw up on me. So I had felt, and that's really when I was talking with, David in the initial meetings, I said, I'm here because I need to be a mom. And I don't want to be the kind of mom that's running out of the room when her kid needs her. So I basically met my goal. And I know you talk in your podcast a lot, Anna, like you knew you were recovered when you met your goal. Um, And my goal in seeing David was, I want to be a good mom who's there for my kids when they puke. So, um, so there it was, my daughter puked, and I was there. But I'll tell a funny moment was after she puked and I, she was cleaned up and everything was okay. I'm sure I emailed David and said, this works. Oh my gosh. I was so excited. I also texted my husband and said, Eden threw up. And that's all I said in the text. Now, most husbands would respond to a non-emetophobe and say, oh, is she okay? Instead, he wrote, OMG, are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah. Are you okay? Because he said, he said he pictured me in the corner in the fetal position while my daughter was sick. 
So, which was an accurate, you know, supposition. That is something I might have done in the past, but now I'm a recovered emetophobe and look at me, I'm mothering. Um, and so, and, and a couple of things happened. So I, I actually met with David. I said, I'm good. I'm cured. Thanks for your help. Um, let's, this is our last session and thank you so much. And it was great. Um, but then things would come up and I needed to see him for what I called maintenance visits. So for instance, I was invited to a bachelorette party in Mexico, drinking and partying and all this stuff I still don't want to do. And I did meet with David and I just wanted to get his permission to say no to this um, because like I didn't see, I wasn't necessarily saying no because I was scared of vomit. So I tell myself, but I was saying no because I don't drink and I don't like, why am I want to be away from my kids for three days so I could be with these drunk girls at a, you know, in a party atmosphere. Um, and he, you know, I was looking for him to say, yes, it's fine. You should say no, because you're right. What's the point? But instead he said, you have to go to this. And he kind of, <laughs> he really pushed me and said, you have to go to this. And he said, you're, I said, why? It's not going to be fun. He said, this isn't fun. This isn't fun. You're not going to have fun. This is work. And this is part of your recovery. And with yeah. emetophobia, you know, there's so few instances of um, exposure in real That's life. True. You know, <laughs> there's intentional exposure, but there's not a lot of accidental exposure. Um, and here is an opportunity to have the possibility of vomit, you know, 24-7, frankly, for four days mm -hmm. in Mexico with these girls. Um, so I did that and it was, he was right. It was important for my confidence building. Um, subsequent to that, a friend of mine with whom, in whom I had confided about my exposure therapy said to me, well, you know, I can vomit on command if you want me to, um, you know, if you, <laughs> yeah. She said, I, Does she I, rent you know, herself out? Like she needs to, you know, um, rent herself out. Yeah, there's a fella that I interviewed, a, a therapist, Ken Goodman, and he throws up on an airplane every time you go. I said, you should charge uh, for, you know, a metaphobic to take a trip with you. Anyway, continue to, uh, about this, uh, Sarah. <laughs> so, yes, this, this very dear, dear friend said, no problem. I could take a shot of whiskey and I will absolutely throw up and I'll do that for you and we can just plan it. And um, so she came over and we, um, our kids were friendly, you know, our kids were having a play date and she, I took her up to my, <laughs> to my bathroom and she had one of those hotel sized bottles of whiskey and took a couple of swigs and sure enough, she threw up. But before that, when we were in the planning phases, I did email David and said, I don't want to waste this opportunity. It's not like she's going to puke on demand whenever I want. This is a one time deal. And I don't want to mess it up, like make like help me through this and make sure give me the tips that I need to know. What do I need to know in order to make this useful? Um, because, again, I, this may never I may never get this opportunity again. And he had some tips about um, about staying present. Don't flush it right away when she throws up in the toilet. Don't get rid of it. Like, see what you can do. Um, and he said, if you feel overwhelmed, it's okay, but stay with it as much as you can. And so he gave me some tips to, to, you know, helpful tips to make the exposure meaningful and worthwhile towards my recovery. Um, and so, okay, so now we're in the bathroom. My friend takes a couple of squigs and she throws up in the toilet. And I am so disgusted and proud to tell you that not only did I not flush the vomit right away, but I stuck my hands in the toilet and touched it. <laughs> Oh, my with, with God. My, Is that in the fingers. book? I don't remember that. <laughs> uh, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure I put it in the book. because It's probably one of my awesome. most proud moments. And I've been through oh, a lot of amazing yeah. things in life. That but that, awesome. to me, was my, my biggest, proudest my, milestone. Um, and I want and I to say to all our listeners, it's not necessary that you do that to recover from a metaphobia. 
<laughs> but I just good had for to you. show myself, you know. And the truth yeah. is, I was, um, I didn't love the moment, but because I think also part of it, maybe this wasn't a perfect exposure in that it was planned and I was ready for it, right? A lot of things that's terrifying about vomit, in my opinion, is the unpredictability about it. Um, the possibility, the unpredictability. It's almost like if I know it's going to happen, I can prepare myself. So yes. it actually is less of a, an extreme exposure than if somebody vomited on my shoes right in front of me and I didn't know it was going to happen. Right, um, right. I, I think that's true. And like you say, we don't come across it very often because adults don't vomit very often. I mean, you pretty much have to be poisoned or, or have so much... By, or, or drunk or whatever, but um, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a that that's a great part of the book, and your story um, is is amazing and wonderful and very inspirational. Absolutely. Uh, the, the sort of last thing I want to ask you, folks, is who came up with the title "Gag Reflections" for your book? <laughs> Um, That's such a good question. <laughs> Tell the story, Dara. I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of stories about this title because we we really went back and forth with it. And we, I mean, I had asked a bunch of friends to um, to give us some title suggestions, and this one I thought was grabby and and catchy. Um, but when David pulled his friends, uh, it didn't go over very well. Um, anyway, and then ultimately we had the publisher help us figure out what this title was going to be. Um, but it's obviously a take on the word gag reflexes, um, but it's gag reflections because I'm reflecting on this whole experience and um, into my journey as a recovering emetophobe. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, the, the title can be a bit triggering for some emetophobic people, but that's your first piece of exposure, you know, buy the book and stare at the title until you're bored by it and it doesn't bother you. Um, the subtitle is something about the fear of vomiting is it not i can't I yes can't it's, um, yeah. the full title is gag reflections conquering a fear of vomit through exposure therapy right yes and even yeah. having the word vomit on the cover yeah. too like that's just a, yeah. it's another exposure it like you were saying anna a lot mm -hmm. of clients need to just start with words like these to to yeah. approach words oh, um, yeah. so that was what was hard about the cover was we just, there was no way you could make it okay for everybody, you know, it's gonna, you know, but yeah. having what I thought was important was that there was humor on some level. And I thought gag reflections brought that side of data yeah. to the book. Right. Um, and yeah. the, the subtitle was my, my side of the uh, kind of therapy right. side, right. side of yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, it's also well, unfortunately we had to use um, we had to be influenced by marketing and publishing and yes. SEO. And yeah. if we didn't have vomit or exposure therapy in the title, yeah. it might the book might never be found by the people who need to find it. Our right. intention in writing it was really to attract emetophobes and attract therapists of emetophobes. Um, yes. So hopefully, if the emetophobes turn, you know, they don't want to see it because of the word vomit. At least their therapists will see it and encourage them to read it. I mean. We really have right. this, um, yeah. this dual approach to it. Yes. And there have been, um, you know, D uh, David Vila and Alexandra Key's book came out this year in the fall. Um, and then Ken Goodman self-published his uh, book, The Emetophobia Manual. And all three books, um, really, it, it, like 
I guess it's we can thank COVID or something, but 2021 has been the year of finally getting things on the market um, by therapists who are registered or licensed. And um, and they're so different that each book would bring, uh, including yours, which is your book is not very long, really easy to read and um, delightful and funny and um yeah, I want to thank you both so much for coming on here and talking with us. Um, I've got, uh, I can put some information about, about is it's available on Amazon, I'm sure. Is it? Because everything yep. is in the world. Yeah. Correct. So, <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for coming. And um, I think this podcast is going to be just, just great for people. Anna, thank you for all your work in this area. I wish I wish I knew about you when I, you know, when I needed you when I was a kid and I was feeling <laughs> alone. I had no idea that there was even a word for it. Um, and it was yeah. really took me three decades of my life until I figured out that there were others like me. Um, and you're doing such great work. I really love your podcast and all your guests and the way you work with your guests and um, helping them feel comfortable. It's really it's amazing work that you're doing. Thank you. I can't, you know, my wait list got so long, I had to close my practice to new patients. And then I just feel like I, I, I need to do some, I just need to do as much as I can while I'm still young. We, when Dara and I were shopping our book around, uh, you know, the problem is, is that a lot of publishers think this is such a small little niche problem, right. that it's like wasn't worth their kind of effort or yeah. whatever. And yeah. I would like them to know that I believe they are wrong. Yes. Um, yeah. And that there well, are yeah. a lot of people out there who will benefit from books like these and your podcasts and your website. And I just yeah. think, I just want to double what Dara is saying. Uh, your work is incredibly important to these folks. And thank you for persisting and continuing to offer this stuff to the world. Well, it's nice. You're welcome. Okay, bye-bye. And thank you also to all of you, my listeners and subscribers, um, and for all the well wishes that people gave me when I mentioned I was, I was struggling with my health for a while, even though I'm better now. Uh, but Thank you so much. Um, just to let you know, there are costs associated with producing the podcast. So if you find it helpful, you could buy me a coffee. Just scroll down to the bottom of the notes on the episode. You'll see a link right there where you can click and buy me a coffee for a couple of bucks, a couple of pounds. I encourage you, if you are needing more information about emetophobia, either as a uh, person with emetophobia or a therapist, please go to my website at emetophobiahelp.org. You will find all the information you need, lots of resources, a therapist list, um, etc. And if you want to get some more information and donate some real money to uh, the cause for emetophobia, I will leave the link to the, to the emetophobia charity as well. Um, the book once again, is Gag Reflections, Conquering a Fear of Vomit Through Exposure Therapy by Dara Lovitz and Dr. David Yusko. See you next week.